Hey everyone, Yas here and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A license football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very, very special guest with me today. My guest today is Alan Stan Jr. Afternoon, morning, Alan, whichever it is for you. How are you, man? I'm doing great. We just hit the afternoon. It's uh, 12.06 in the afternoon, so I've already had a pretty full day, but I'm fantastic, and I'm, I'm so excited to be with you. Definitely, man. I'm, I'm excited to have you with me as well. Alan, just before we get into the real um, part of the conversation, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, because I'm sure there's going to be a few people that have heard of you, a few people that maybe haven't come across you and your work before. But again, if they haven't yet, I'm sure they're going to be following you after this one. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. I always go into every conversation with the assumption that people have no idea who I am. So I, I like leaning into that. Uh, on the personal side, I'm a very amicably divorced father of three, and I love being a father. Uh, on the professional side, I'm a former basketball performance coach. Uh, I did I worked with some of the highest performing players in the world for close to 15 years uh, before making the very distinct pivot five years ago uh, into corporate keynote speaking and writing, which is what I do now. Um, but but basically everything I share in the business world um, is for folks to improve their businesses and their lives comes through the lens of someone that spent his entire life in sport. So I, I take all of the principles and disciplines and routines that I learned from world-class basketball players, and I show folks how they can apply those to their lives and to their businesses. Amazing, amazing. It sounds like a, a phenomenal journey that you've been on so far in your, in your career. Um, just, you know, and one of the key words that kind of really jumps out at me as you're talking there is transferable skills, right? Transferable skills. So, you know, before we get into the nuts and bolts, Let's talk a little about how did you come about getting into this line of work? Because, you know, it's something where I know for myself, you know, growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really know. Um, and all I knew is I don't want to be stuck behind a desk. Yeah. Um, but as time went on and as life started to happen for me, I realized that actually I just like helping people. And for me, my sport is, is football or soccer. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the, I guess that's the tool that I use to kind of, navigate the support that I can try and have an impact on other people's lives. Um, where did that come from, come for you? Um, yeah. Well, well, very early in my training career, very similar to you, I was just thankful that I had a job that didn't have me in a cubicle or didn't have me behind a desk and didn't have me wearing a coat and tie. And, you know, basketball was my first love. I fell in love with the game at five years old. And, you know, I, I was able to play all the way up through university level here in the States. And while I was training to become a college player, uh, I started to develop an equal love for strength and conditioning and for mindset training and for performance work. So when I graduated from university, I figured what could be better than combining my first love of basketball 
with my new love of performance training. And I dove headfirst in as a basketball performance coach. And, and for those first few years, I was under the the mistaken guise of thinking that it was all about the physical, that it was all about improving strength and explosion and power. Uh, and while that was certainly a portion of it, it wasn't until I realized how important the mind was in order to, to reach one's full physical potential that I really started to broaden my perspective. And then continuing down that line, uh, once I started to realize, as you just said so perfectly with, with soccer, is that basketball was just my platform. It, it was just the, the vehicle. My, my real goal and my real purpose in calling uh, was to improve change on a much bigger scale uh, and to help the players I was working with improve their lives outside of the game of basketball. So that's when I started to develop a real deep interest uh, in leadership, uh, in culture, in communication, in accountability, in emotional intelligence, in self-awareness. And these are the pillars that, that are, are transferable. You know, the, the concepts that I would teach in the game of basketball, you know, these things apply to every area of life. And one of the reasons I love my work so much is the, the stuff that I share with audiences on stage or the stuff that I share with readers on page also helps me in my own life. I mean, these things help me be a better father. Uh, they help me be a better member of my community. So, you know, for me, it's the principles with the highest utility are the ones that are, that, that are the best investment for us to make. 100% and I, I, lo I love the passion there and I you know the word that you used there was a these are some of the pillars for you um you talked about trying to combine I guess your passion for the game of basketball with some of the I guess the, the, the larger ambitions for yourself and that's you know about having an impact really but what was it about strength and conditioning in particular that kind of caught your eye and at what point did you start to shift your your curiosity around actually there's a lot around this mindset piece because for me personally, I guess I never really started delving deeper into those sorts of things and really appreciating how, how impactful, not just the strength and conditioning pieces, but the mindset piece is until I got a few years into my coaching journey in particular and just going through life and understanding actually there's a lot up here that controls everything out here. Absolutely. And I had to kind of figure a lot of that out through trial and error. I mean, I'm, I'm 46 years old. So when I was a high school player, you know, talking about the, the early 1990s, um, there really wasn't a lot surrounding. First of all, there wasn't a lot on performance training, strength and conditioning. That was still very new in the basketball community, but there was even less uh, as far as actual mindset training. And it was one of those ones. And even still to this day, you know, if, if you were to ask a bunch of coaches, you know, what percentage of the game is is mindset related or, or what portion of the game or, or one success is mindset related? You'll hear anything from 50 percent all the way up to 80 to 90 percent. So people acknowledge how important the mind is. And then when you follow that up with, well, what are you doing to train the mind or what are you doing to train your athlete's mind? They kind of look at you with a blank stare. Like, what, what do you mean train the mind? How, how do you train the mind? Um, now, thankfully, that's progressed immensely over the last 30 years. You know, I, I think you would have gotten a lot more blank stares back in the 90s than, than you would get today because we've seen at the highest of levels. You know, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the, the Euro Cup or you're talking about the NBA, you know, the highest level athletes are investing massive time and money into mindset training and mental skills coaches and, and things where they can improve that. So for me, it was a little bit of trial and error. Uh, I fell in love with the performance work because I always realized as a basketball player, that was something I had control over. You know, I, I couldn't control how tall I was and 
really couldn't control my athleticism to a degree, but I could always control what type of shape I was in. I could always control, you know, was I working to physically become stronger? So my goal for the first day of tryouts every year was to show up in the best shape of my life. So I just naturally gravitated towards that. And like I said, then I, I slowly stumbled upon, you know, something I think I knew intuitively, which was in order to get the most out of myself physically, I have to be able to tap into myself mentally. And, and that just created kind of this natural progression of, of what I do with people today. Mm. No, I, I think it's brilliant what you say then. I, I guess it's different for everyone. There's no one, you know, there's no one size fits all if you, if you like, but what, what, what was it for you that maybe you started, you started to recognize, actually, if I start doing some of these things, I'm really able to tap into this. Cause you know, people talk about you know, the being, you know, mindful meditation, you know, trying to be more present, just taking time out for yourself and not feeling guilty about that and doing, you know, all these little things, which is guess self-care, if you like, what, where, where, where did you first come into realization that actually, first of all, this is something I definitely need to work on, but actually these are some of the steps I actually maybe need to take to recognize what was working for me if that makes sense. It does. No, I think the light bulb went off. So when I first started working with basketball players here in the States, I was working mostly with uh, middle school and high school age players. Now I was very fortunate to work at two different schools that have produced over a dozen players currently in the NBA, uh, Kevin Durant being the most notable. So I was working with a really high level uh, of, of high school age athlete. Um, but, but I noticed, you know, at the high school level, if you were physically dominant, you know, you could be one of the best players, you know, you, you could get away with certain things if, if you were big, tall, strong, and athletic. But then I noticed that some of those players would move up to the next level and play it at the college level here um, that, you know, at that level, most of the players are bigger and stronger. That's why they're playing in college. And then I noticed, you know, when those guys got to the NBA, everybody in the NBA is, is athletic. Everybody's big and strong and powerful and skilled. Now, certainly some more so than others, but I started to realize that in the NBA, um, the physicality was less of a separator because everyone was athletic. The thing that separated the Kobe's and the LeBron's and the KD's and the Chris Paul's and the Steve Nash's, it was it was their mental approach. And, and once that kind of clicked and said, OK, everybody in the NBA is, is athletic and skilled, but how come these guys are the 10 best players in the game? And it became very obvious to me it was it was their approach. It was their perspective. It was their mindset. Um, and, and that's when I was like, okay, there's, there's really something to this. And then started to try to apply that to my own life. So, you know, in, in observing those things there, because I think you're spot on it as, you know, as young athletes or just young people in general, people are going to have earlier peaks than others, whether that be physically, whether that be, uh, you know, uh, psychologically, and they become more mature and have a developed sense of awareness. But obviously, once they get to a certain level, everyone becomes a bit more on a level playing field. And it's just little one percent that you're talking about in terms of how they approach it and how often can they get back up when they get knocked down and all that sort of stuff. You've worked with some of the most elite athletes, um, especially in the world of basketball. You know, you're talking there about Kevin Durant. You know, I know you've done some work with Kobe, and if I correct me if wrong, you know, people like Chris Bosch, Steph Curry. Is there, I mean, yes, they've all got different approaches in terms of how they might go about doing it. But what would you say are some of the key characteristics within that mindset piece that is just like, no, this, this is consistent. This is something that all elite athletes must have. Well, strictly from a mindset behavior to blame, complain, and make excuses. Like they know that the, the buck starts and stops with them. 
them and that, that, you know, um, they hold themselves accountable to everything going on. They realize that they don't control outside circumstances and events, but they control their response to those things. And that mindset in and of itself is a game changer. Uh, another area that, that these high performers have adopted um, is they, they understand the importance of being in the present moment. You know, there's, there's a saying that in order to win the moment, you have to be in the moment, which means, you know, especially during competition when they're playing, they're not really concerned with the past. You know, they're not worried about if they lost their last game or if they missed their last shot. They're in the moment. Uh, at the same time, they don't get anxious about the future. You know, they're not worried about whether or not they're going to win or lose the game when it's the middle of the second quarter. They're focusing on this possession. And what do I need to do right now for our team to hopefully, in this example, score a basket on this possession? So they do a brilliant job of, of staying in the present moment. And then the last thing that the, the elite do from a mindset standpoint is they're very process driven. Um, yes, they have goals and outcomes, you know, they, they want to be all-stars and they want to get the big contract and they want to make the hall of fame and they want to win championships. All that stuff is fantastic. And they use those things as a source of motivation and as kind of a, a way to, to provide clarity and direction, but they really sink their effort and their focus into the process. What do I need to do today to get a little bit better? You know, what do I need to focus on? What are the habits and the rituals and the routines that I need to develop that will give me the opportunity to earn the right to win those things and, and achieve those type of accolades? And, and they recognize that a good portion of the process happens during what we call the unseen hours, which is when no one else is watching. And all those guys that I just named from, from Kobe to LeBron to Steph Curry to KD, they realize that the work they put in when no one is watching. When there are no cameras, there's no, you know, the arenas are empty, there's no cheerleaders dancing, the work they put in then is going to determine how well they perform when the lights come on and the cheerleaders start dancing. So they understand that relationship between process and outcome. And, and those are things that, that I kind of observed firsthand, and now I've tried to adopt into my own life as a father, as a speaker, as an author, as a business owner, and it's it's been an absolute game changer for me. No, I can imagine, and, and you know, as you're talking there, kind of just, you know, really makes me think back about a story that I've seen you tell before around Kobe and you, one of your first interactions with him, especially getting that behind the scenes, look at what his, you know, individual program might have looked like away from, away from the team stuff. So maybe just give us a bit of insight on that. Cause that, 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 that really, it really set the picture in terms of those fundamentals, you know, the process that you talk about there. Most certainly. What I'll do is I'll kind of give a condensed version of the story, and then I'll encourage your listeners and your viewers uh, to go to my YouTube channel and check out some of the videos that tell the, the more uh, dramatic version of the story. But yeah, in 2007, I had a chance to meet Kobe for the first time. Uh, I was working one of his skills academies, and I had a chance to watch one of his really early morning workouts. And I remember as a younger coach being so surprised that he was so focused on basic drills and basic footwork. You know, he was really drilling down on the fundamentals. And that surprised me as a coach because I was expecting him to do some stuff with some flash and some sizzle and some sexiness and some really, you know, intricate drills. But he just kept working on the basics repeatedly over and over. And uh, later that day at camp, you know, I, I got to the point I was so curious that I asked him, and I said point blank, you know, Kobe, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And he said something that changed my life forever. You know, he gave me a big smile and a friendly wink, but he said in a very serious tone, 
why do you think I'm the best in the world? Because the best never get bored with the basics. And, and that radically changed my approach to everything I do in life now. I try to get crystal clear on what are the basics and the fundamentals that I need to work towards mastery of during the unseen hours to allow me to, to perform at an elite level in this specific area. You know, whether it's a keynote speaker, an author, a podcast host, or anything in between, I try and constantly work on refining uh, the basics and, and improving the basics. And then uh, a couple disclaimers to make about that. You know, uh, one, I'm not saying that Kobe only did the basics. He would certainly graduate up and work on more advanced techniques and advanced moves. What I'm saying is he never left the basics behind. You know, he would progressively build every workout and every practice session, starting with the basics, working towards mastery of the mundane, and then slowly moving up. He would never leave them entirely. And I, I think that's that's the part that's important because I will acknowledge that in many areas, the basics are monotonous. They're mundane, sometimes can get a little bit boring, but you don't need to focus on the actual fundamentals. You need to focus on falling in love with improvement and with progress, you know, fall in love with, with what the basics will give you. You know, anytime someone says to me, the basics are boring, I usually say, okay, I, I, I can see that. Is winning boring? You know, is improvement boring? You know, is progress boring? And of course, the answer to that is no. So you also have to decide which part you focus on. You know, if you go into it just saying, "Ugh, I got to do these boring drills, then you're not going to get the most out of them. If you say, look, mastering these drills is the building block required for me to be the best player I'm capable of. And that's where my true passion is. Then, then you're able to do that at a very high level. 100% and there's two kind of really key things that come at me when you're when you're speaking. The first of all, at no point did you mention it about feeling. Now, what I mean by that is Kobe never said he loves the basics. He just right. said he knows he's got to do them. And I think that's the key piece a lot of people need to get over. You don't have to like it. You just have to do it. Um, and, I, you know, we can dress it up in any way we, we want in terms of falling in love with the process really what I'm saying, look, you understand what's needed. You've just got to stick at it. And I think the other side of it is, I can't, I can't, I can't remember who said it, but I think it was, I think it was, I think I heard it on a Ed Milet podcast. And Ed, Ed was saying something along the lines of, you know, if you, if you knew you had to sprint a race, but you didn't know where the finish line was, how long could you sprint for? And it, it, it literally just, it just, it just kind of blew my mind. I thought, you know, that is a perfect way to put it. Cause you don't know when it's going to make a difference. Right. You don't know when that tipping point is going to be where all of these basics have actually just come into come into play for you when it matters most, if you like. So, I mean, that, that I think that's a real, real key piece in, in what you said there and kind of unpacking it a little bit further. Talk to us, you know, if someone's at the start of that journey and, you know, really a lot of people probably are early on in the journey and they don't even know what they don't know yet. Of course. How do, how do, how do you, you know, how do you as, a, as an individual coach, a performance coach, get them to start thinking outside of that box or, do, or or is it a case of that age old saying you know the student will be ready when the teacher or the teacher will be there when the student is ready to learn it's it's a it will be slightly different for everyone i think a general framework needs to be i, I always believe in and you know this this paradigm has been around a lot longer than I've been breathing. I don't know who said it first, but the concept of start with the end in mind, you know, uh, get crystal clear on what is it that you're trying to achieve? You know, are, are you in middle school and your goal is to play college basketball? That's a fantastic goal. 
Okay, well, get crystal clear on, on, on exactly what it is that you're trying to do. And then you need to reverse engineer a process and a system and a series of habits and disciplines that will increase the chance that you'll reach that goal. And again, if you're in middle school and your goal is to be a college player, and let's say you've got six years to make that happen, well, you've got a nice long runway to be able to figure that out and to work back and say, okay, you know, what do I need to do each year to put me on path to being a college player? What do I need to do each quarter? What do I need to do each month, each week? And eventually you'll get down to the point, what do I need to do today that will take me just a little bit closer to that goal? Now, uh, there's, and you can apply this, this doesn't have to be a middle schooler trying to play in college. Uh, this can be someone that wants to improve their marriage. This can be someone that wants to, you know, they're a sales professional at, the, at a company and they want to sell at a higher level so they can make more income. You know, it's the same process. Figure out exactly what you're trying to achieve and then slowly reverse engineer it. Now, part of that reverse engineering, um, I don't believe life is meant to be done alone. So you don't need to figure out everything on your own. Uh, this is when you need to, you know, uh, uh, solicit a mentor or a coach uh, or find a peer or, you know, a, a group that you can join or somebody that, that has access to certain blind spots that you may have, uh, somebody that has blazed the path that you're trying to go down on. You know, if if my goal was to play college basketball, then you better believe I want to talk to some college basketball players and ask what they did. Uh, and equally important, what are the things you avoided doing that allowed you to, to reach your goal? So um, I think it's really, really important to, to kind of reach out. And, and, and again, I'm a huge advocate of mentorship. I'm a huge advocate of hiring coaches. I mean, I believe in the coaching dynamic. So figure out the one that, that does that all on your own. And, and I'm, I'm so glad you said that because there's, there's, a, there's a lot in there. I think the power of mentorship is immense. But I think there's also something that needs to be said within that is, like you said, try and get the full picture. Don't just do the things that will work, but to avoid the things that aren't working and try and cut those out from early on. But even within that, it's looking at not everyone is a mentor for everything. Look at what it is that you need. Identify what that is and try and identify someone who knows that. Because one of, the, one of my biggest bugbears, especially in the coach education pathway over here, is when you pass a certain level of a qualification, one of the kind of key action points is, yeah, go and observe some experienced coaches. But it's like, if I'm new to this, how do I know whether that experience is a good experience to be observing? How do I know whether the person that I'm going to now observe or work alongside has the necessary skills or knowledge that I need to take to where I want to go next? So within that, what are some of the questions that maybe you'd encourage people to start asking themselves around that sort of thing? I love the idea of kind of having a specialized mentor, if you will, and, and somebody that knows something very specifically. I know in my own life, you know, I have a speaking coach. I have a writing coach. Uh, I have kind of a, a, a life coach slash therapist. Uh, I have what I call a financial coach, somebody that helps me make better decisions with my money. Um, and each one of those people uh, has a, a higher level of expertise in that specific area than I do. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. Um, another paradigm that I found incredibly helpful, I learned several years ago from a gentleman named Frank Shamrock, uh, who was one of the initial, uh, Frank and his brother Ken were like two of the initial UFC fighters. Like they put MMA fighting on the map uh, back in the 90s. And, and Frank taught me, um, he said that, that 
each and every one of us needs to have three people in our lives at all times. We need to have a person that's in front of us, somebody that's already blazed the path that we're trying to go down, uh, someone that can kind of mentor us and, and teach us. Uh, then we need to have somebody that's alongside us, a peer, uh, somebody that's that's going through the same journey we're going through, and will have very high empathy and compassion for our own struggles and, and our own challenges and adversities, um, but also has the ambition and drive uh, to reach a similar destination. And then we need to have a person that's behind us, uh, somebody that we can pour into and mentor and send the elevator back down, and somebody that we can teach. And uh, of course, when I say behind us, I don't say that in a diminishing way, um, like any type of, of hierarchy, simply say that, hey, you know, I'm 46 years old. There's probably someone in their early 20s that aspires to do some of the things that I've had the opportunity to do. Now, can I mentor them and help them? Um, and if you can be very intentional about having those three people in your life, um, it helps give you a much broader perspective of, of everything going on. And, and it'll also help you uncover uh, some blind spots. And keep in mind with that, you know, you're not signing these people up for a lifetime contract. You know, you're not saying that, oh, you need to be my mentor for the next 50 years. You know, someone might only relationship has come to fruition and then you find somebody else or, you know, you, you just never know. Or somebody that starts out as one of your peers, you can kind of grow apart and have different goals and ambitions. So you're not signing anybody up uh, you're not picking these three people and, and assuming they're going to be with you for life, but it's just important throughout your journey to have those three different vantage points and angles uh, at all times. And, and I know that, that ever since Frank taught me that, that has been a very helpful tool for me and, and one that I, I heavily embrace. And just, just before we continue, Ken Shamrock, the baddest man on the planet. <laughs> You know, I think he, he was phenomenal. He was phenomenal. Um, yeah, he was. MMA, but even before he came to the MMA, you know, when he was still in the WWF at the time, um, awesome athlete. But I, you know, I, I take on board what you said there. And I, you know, re really, you know, it reminds me of another another saying that goes, you know, if you have someone below you, you know, not in a hierarchical fashion, but someone who's behind you in the journey and starting out, and you can actually help and support them, you get to further clarify your own knowledge, because. Yes. Like you said, using that word and love it, deliberate and intentional around, am I giving this person the information that's actually going to help? How certain am I and how clear am I on this information being the right information? So in some ways you get to learn it twice because you get to reinforce it and get clarity on it. So I think, I think that, that bit is so key. But I think also the part that you, you talked there about, you know, someone might be a peer to start with and then you might go off in different paths. Someone might be a mentor to start with and you might end up becoming peers. So I think there's, there's so much growth that can take place in, in in all these different directions but I'm, I'm i'm really keen to you know examine more about the work that you do in particular and looking at what are some of the key principles now we we're talking about building organizations and teams and effective effective leadership within that as, as well as that mindset piece on the individual you know where, where do you start with that well i've always been a big believer that the first thing you do to improve the team is you improve yourself uh, so I'm a huge believer in everyone holding themselves accountable and working to becoming the best versions of themselves. You know, back when I was in the basketball training space and, and our high school players, you know, would kind of break for the summer, um, you know, I would say to them directly, 
you know, if you want the team to be better next season, then you need to come back better next season. You know, if you come back more skilled and stronger and more athletic and have a higher IQ and your 14 teammates all do the same thing, then we've already kind of raised the baseline of what, you know, what we're capable of accomplishing together. So, uh, you know, and when it comes to individual performance, you know, this, um, making time for self-care, uh, all of that stuff goes into it. So that's kind of the base level is getting everyone on the team to work on their own habits and mindset and focus and, and prioritize self-care so that they can be the best version of themselves. Once everybody's done that, then we got to figure out, you know, how can we become a cohesive team or a cohesive unit? And then things like role clarity, uh, accountability, uh, communication, these things kind of fall under the umbrella of, of culture. You know, does, does everyone on the team know their role, uh, embrace their role and try to star in their role? Uh, does everyone value and appreciate and respect everybody else's role? You know, if we keep using sports analogies, you know, uh, does the starting point guard uh, have a strong respect and reverence for the second string point guard, the person that doesn't get to play as much but still shows up to practice every single day uh, to bust their backside and work as hard as they can. You know, do they acknowledge that that is a valuable member of our team um, and that that's vital. So you've got role clarity. Uh, then you've got accountability. You know, we, we need to, as a group, we need to know our identity and we need to know our core values and what we stand for and what we believe in, but then we need to hold each other accountable to those things. Um, you know, it's one thing to have a set of beliefs but if your behaviors don't match your beliefs or those aren't in alignment, then you've got a very weak culture. And that starts with accountability. And, you know, then another pillar, uh, and I do love using that word, is communication. You know, how effectively does your team communicate? And I'm a big believer that, you know, arguably the most important part of communication is the listening portion, is becoming a very solid, active listener and listening with the intent to connect not just waiting for your turn to talk. So, you know, when you can get everyone on the team committed to individual improvement and then know their role, uh, be willing to hold others accountable and have themselves held accountable and communicate that effectively, now you put all of that stuff together and, and you've got the makings uh, of an elite level culture and a championship caliber team. I 100% agree with you. And there's, a, again, a couple of things just, just jumping out at me as you're talking. The first piece around developing yourself um, and I think you know in in my in the majority of my work right now I operate as a coach developer so I'm supporting coaches or upskilling them and trying to expose some of the blind spots that you that you've mentioned there and one of the things that I've always said is as a coach if you're not getting what you want from your athletes or your environment even if you don't think it's fair blame yourself take accountability for it and even it might not see it might not be fair but the thing is by putting yourself in that frame of mind you're now saying well i'm going to make myself better to deal with this situation um even if you know there could be two athletes having a fight it's got nothing to do with you actually well it's got something to do with you because you've allowed them to believe that environment is okay for them to be able to do that in so change the environment develop that and then you know the other the other piece that you just mentioned there <laughs> the thing that jumped out for me was more specifically that we will only be able to develop when we have that clarity. So the communication piece is really key. Now, the communication piece, the listening part is important. But like you said, it's not listening to respond. It's listening to understand, listening to communicate effectively. But that's a massive challenge for a lot of people. It's a massive challenge for a lot of people. So how do you, because you know, if, if it's in the responding manner, 
it's a lot about ego. How do you get people to let go of that ego? And, and, and my just, first answer to that, yeah, that is, is humility. You know, humility is a big portion of it. And that's another thing that unites high performers. Um, they've earned their right to be confident because they've put in the work during the unseen hours. But the highest performers um, brush that with a massive stroke of humility, uh, humility to the point that they stay open to feedback, humility to the point that they're open to someone coaching them, you know, humility to the point that no matter how good they are, they acknowledge that they can still get better. See, as soon as we lose the humility, then we become closed off. Then we don't want to hear feedback. We're not very coachable. We're not open to receiving those type of messages. So, you know, the, the very first thing you need to do uh, to be a, a, a world-class active listener is you need to be humble. Uh, and I know this through firsthand experience because I used to be an awful listener and I used to lack massive humility as well. And that, that you know, those two things were, were intrinsically linked. Uh, it wasn't until I could step outside of my ego, which was really driven by fear and insecurity and step outside of that to be able to say, you know what, I don't have all of the answers. I, I can really learn something from this coach. I need to be humble enough and open enough to accept what it is they're sharing with me. And because I'm so curious and fascinated and I want to learn, now I'm going to really dial in and actively listen. So that's a, a huge part of it. And, you know, what one of the things that came to mind when you were saying what you were saying before, kind of about accountability and communication, uh, I see this a lot of times, especially in coaching, but it also happens in the business world. You know, a coach will say something like, you know, man, I have told you a hundred times that I need you to box out. And, and I would always kind of chuckle because I used to be one of those coaches. So I'm not saying this with judgment, but now I just kind of give them a friendly, you know, a little elbow and a wink. And I say, look, if you've told someone something a hundred times and they're still not doing it, then you're not a very good communicator. Like clearly your message is not getting through. So instead of blaming them for not doing it, why don't you figure out a different way to tell them? or a different way to show them, or a different way to coach them. You know, I mean, if you have to say something more than two or three times, then clearly that method of communication is not working and you need to find another way. And, and again, I say all of this with a huge smile because I know when my kids were younger, I uttered that statement a few times. Like, you know, so everything I share now, everything I share on stage, everything I share on page, everything I share in podcast, you know, I'm not coming from a place of mastery. You know, I'm I'm still working on these things. These are things that still challenge me and I struggle with. And a lot of the stuff that I share now are things that I used to make these mistakes in the past and I've learned from them and I found a better way. And that's ultimately what I try to share now. As you were talking, I'm smiling because there's a couple key things that kind of, the first word that jumped out for me was vulnerability. Really? You're talking about being humble. You're talking about being open, but really it's vulnerability and being, being open to the idea that actually I don't have all the answers. Um, and I know something from my own experiences that that vulnerability piece has really helped wow. me transform my impact with my, with my athletes in them understanding that, yes, I have some answers, but I don't have all the answers. And sometimes we're going to be on that journey together. And, that, and that's fine. That's okay. We can, we can work through it together as long as we understand where we're at on that journey. Um, but the communication piece now, this is, this is really interesting because people always talk about, well, what does effective communication look like? And what does good feedback look like? And, you know, I want feedback and I want this. And they always mention the idea of wanting honesty, honest feedback, honest, open feedback. But the reality is for a lot of people and probably a large majority of people, you give them honesty, now they're upset. <laughs> they're upset. So it's 
I mean, you, you used the word earlier, intu intuitively, intuit intuitively around how you, you just, you know, you found certain things that work for you, essentially. Now, you don't always have to be able to explain how it works or why it works. You just have your experiences knowing that this has worked for me and I'm going to keep doing this until it, until it stops working, right? Yep. Is there a point at which honest feedback doesn't work, even if it cuts deep? Well, it, it doesn't work if the person's not open to receiving it. And that's, that's the, you know, it, for feedback to be effective, it's kind of a two-way opt-in. You know, I have to be willing to be honest and, and be transparent and give you my full uh, perspective, um, which that's kind of my opt-in, but then you have to have the humility and the vulnerability and the courage to be able to be open and to listen to accept that. And if if either one of us aren't doing our part, um, then, then the feedback is going to certainly fall short. Um, uh, a few things, though, that we, we have to remember. Uh, one of the most important, I guess, kind of life-altering perspectives to have is that every single one of us sees the world through a very biased lens. We see through the lens um, that has been biased by our own past, by where we grew up. Uh, by how we were raised, uh, you know, by by what content we consume. I mean, there's so many things that that shape who we are. Uh, I mean, I would imagine there's significant cultural differences just between you and I, you know, living on you know different continents and 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 what we you know were taught and raised growing up, different perspectives. So the other part is we have to realize that if I was going to give you feedback and honest feedback, we have to both acknowledge that my feedback is biased based on the way that I see the world. And of course, the way you're going to receive that feedback is going to be biased based on the way that you see the world. So, you know, it's, it's not that we're going to be uh, discussing or debating and arguing facts per se. Most of what we discuss and most of what's shared in feedback is simply perception. And, and from my vantage point, my perspective is that, you know, here is here is how I believe you performed or here's how I evaluate you on this last whatever. Um, that's really I'm only seeing it through my lens. So I'm, I'm not saying that this is a truth. I'm not saying this is factual. I'm just sharing with you what I can see from my vantage point. Uh, and then you need to be able to be open to receiving that and then sharing what you see from your vantage point. So uh, feedback should be less one directional and more of a collaboration and a conversation of being able to say, okay, you asked me to evaluate your skills on during this practice. Here's what I saw. Here's where I think you have opportunities for growth. Here's what I think you did really well. But then I need to give you some space to be able to share what you see from your perspective and, and whether or not you agree with that feedback. Uh, and when we can learn to be less divisive and less critical and less judgmental, and we can get out of this paradigm of I'm right and you're wrong, what I say is good, what you say is bad, that just drives us apart. You know, feedback very much needs to be much more of a collaboration um, and, and two people working together to try to find the best information possible so that both people can move forward and, and hopefully improve performance. I, I love that because you know, really what you just said is just put yourself in the other person's shoes. Put yourself in the other person's shoes, see it from their perspective and then see. But I think the important piece is there is that it's not telling the person what they're doing is wrong, but it's just providing an observation. Yes. Here's how I've observed it. 
this is what I've seen. What are your thoughts? And it's something that kind of really resonates with me because even in the role that I kind of take up as a coach developer and a coach mentor, when I'm looking at other coaches, you know, just that curiosity, you know, this is, can I share my thoughts with you? This is what I've observed. You know, what, what, what are your thoughts? And did, did you find that for yourself? And just kind of, it becomes more of a reflective conversation rather than right or wrong, or this is, this is what's happening. And this is, this is what's not happening. And I think it's, it's been it's been a phenomenal journey for me on on in that space because it really helps me to understand right what are people perceiving yeah what, what are they paying attention to you know what are, what are they considering to be important in this moment and something that's irrelevant um and again there's no right or wrong it's all contextual right so i think from that from that perspective it's, it's just really painting that picture but having them paint the picture with you rather than just just you giving them a frame and saying hey this is this is the picture you're going to be given Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think we make an issue with is we often confuse feedback with someone's personal preference. You know, I mean, it's it, you saying that you don't like my blue T-shirt is not really feedback. Like, that's just your preference. You don't really like the T-shirt I'm wearing. And that's OK. Every right to not like it. But there, there's not really anything for me to do with that. Yeah, I could go change it and person might not like the red t-shirt. So that, that's not really valid feedback. Now, if you say, um, hey, Alan, I think, uh, you know, if you're going to be a guest on someone's podcast, that maybe you should dress in more business casual attire, that, that I don't know if wearing a t-shirt is the best for your brand. Okay, I might not agree with that, but at least getting closer to destructive that I can actually give some thought to wear a polo shirt or, you know, a button up shirt or wear a blazer, you know, you're giving me something that I can actually use to course correct and move forward. So from a feedback standpoint, we want to try and take the, the, the personalization out of feedback, make it much more neutral and sterile and unbiased and just simply say, look, uh, here's what I'm seeing from my angle. And, and here's what, what I think you could use uh, to improve your performance in this area. And, uh, so I, I think, unfortunately, feedback gets so muddled in so many of these different areas, instead of just being much more honest, direct, and offering specific feedback that can actually elevate performance. 100% agree with you. So I guess, you know, on that note, then, what would you say are some of the, what would you say is a starting point for people to start reflecting on their own practice and whether the considerations they're currently making are the effective ones, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I, I think... I think it's important that we try to narrow uh, uh, narrow the lens and ask for very specific feedback. So let's just say that that um, I'm I'm coming over to the UK to speak, and you're, you're going to come watch my keynote. You know, um, if I was interested in your feedback, then I would want to put up some specific parameters and ask for something specific. You know, I could say something to the effect of. You know, um, I occasionally I occasionally throw in a filler word and I say um every now and then. Can you watch my keynote and count how many times I say um and and, and give me that type of feedback so I know I can improve that or uh, something specific like that? You know, I I sometimes I have the tendency to pace back and forth on stage instead of of standing and making a point and being more confident and landing that point. Um, can you give me some feedback on, on my movement on stage and, and my physicality? Um, that will be way more helpful 
than at the end, you just telling me whether you liked it or not. Because again, that's coming down to preference, you know? Um, now, uh, something else I could say is, hey, you know, it's really important for me, for my keynotes um, to offer some practical, actionable takeaways, you know, things that people can actually write down and go implement. You know, I would love your feedback on the three primary takeaways that I'm giving today. And I would love to know if you think those things are practical and actionable. And if there's something that you as an audience member would actually do, like that's very helpful feedback. Uh, the, the feedback can't be, you know, Hey, did you like the Kobe story? Cause that's kind of like the blue shirt. Maybe you did like it. Maybe you didn't. Uh, and just because you didn't like the story doesn't mean that it's not a valuable story and it doesn't teach an important lesson. So I, I think anytime, you know, and again, that's why this is a, a collaboration. This is me asking for a few things specifically for you to keep an eye out for when I'm speaking and you offer that back to me. And then I use that information to hopefully tweak and make improvements moving forward. Awesome feedback. One, they don't really want to hear the honest feedback, but two, they just want generic they've never really considered deliberately and intentionally what it is they actually want to get support on. So the first thing, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned it because even when I go out and support coaches or I'm watching other people uh, work, but, and they ask me for feedback, so what do you want feedback on? What do you want me to really pay attention to in my observations? Is there anything specific that you want me to kind of give you some insight on? Because there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can talk about here, but I'd rather get to the heart of what it is that you really want to get, get to work on. For sure. Well, most people, and again, I've, I've been guilty of this too. So I don't, when I say that, I don't say this with an ounce of judgment. When most people ask for feedback, they are in a very passive aggressive way asking for praise. Like, you know, and, and so the other thing is, if you're going to ask for feedback, you have to ask for it in the continuum of time where you can actually implement a change. So uh, my most recent book, Sustain Your Game, came out uh, a couple of months ago. If if you read my book and I ask for your feedback, like, what am I going to do with that feedback? The book has already been printed. The book is done. There's nothing I can do about it. So ultimately what I'm saying is, will you read my book and kind of tell me you like it? So I feel good about myself. You know, if I really wanted your feedback, I would have given you the manuscript six months before the book went to print. And I would say, you know, I really do want your feedback, um, especially in chapter, you know, four on poise, because I know that's an area that you really have, uh, you excel in. Uh, I would love to know your thoughts and, and, you know, do I, do I need to add it? You know, like you have to know when you're asking of that, asking for feedback once something is already kind of a finished product. Um, and, and I know many things aren't actual finished products. The book is an easy example because once that thing is printed, that thing is done. Um, but, but even most speakers, you know, afterwards when they're done speaking and they say, can you give me some feedback? They just want to pad their ego and they just want you to tell them you did a great job because you can't undo whatever it is you just said on stage. Now, if you're like me and you play the long-term game, if someone gives me some feedback on a keynote, I will make changes moving forward. So the next keynote, I can absolutely incorporate some of that feedback. So it's not as, uh, you know, it's, it's not as rigid as say putting out a book, but yeah, it's been my experience that a lot of people say that, you know, they, they write something and they put it up on social and then they say, Hey, I want your feedback. And then they get upset when people give them constructive comments, they defend it. It was like, well, you just asked for feedback. And that, that goes back to your point of people say they want honest feedback and then they get their feelings hurt when someone gives it to them, which, which just doesn't make sense. I, I know in my life, I've really worked hard 
to depersonalize the content that I put out in the world and me as a human being. And that's not easy to do. I mean, because it's a very personal relationship. But I've learned that if I put out a video and you don't like the video and you make a comment criticizing it, I've learned to separate myself and say, okay, he's not criticizing me as a human being. He's criticizing this piece of content that I made. And he has every right to do that. That is okay. If, if I'm going to put myself out in the world, then I can't be upset when people judge it or criticize it or offer feedback. You know, if I don't want you to criticize my video, then I should keep it to myself. I should not show anyone and it'll never get criticized. So I think if you're going to choose to put your work out in public, part of part of what comes with that is people's ability to offer their opinion on it. And you need to be open to that. 100%. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the feedback piece and times when I've given feedback, especially when I'm talking to athletes in particular, you know, it might be give them the praise, but give them the praise with context. And what, what I mean by that is, Alan, I love the way that you, you know, you you managed to pivot yourself over here, because, but the, the rationale behind it, why did I love it? I loved it because it allowed you to do this and maybe start to get you to think about that because now I've given you the, the praise on the actual action. I've now additionally attached to that how I believe from my perceptions it may have helped you. And now you yep. get to internalize that and, rec- and think, actually, yeah, it did allow me to do that. So now because it, it allowed me to do that and I got a positive result out of it, I can potentially reinforce that because like they say, what gets praised gets repeated. Was it what gets rewarded gets repeated? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in on the same note, it's almost in that moment where it's not always got to be praised, but sometimes it could be reflective feedback in the sense of, right, Alan, I could see what you were, th- you, you, you know, what you tried to do there. Just tell me what you were thinking as it was happening. Yes. And unpack it with you because it's really now trying to get to that point where one of the biggest, you know, use that word pillars in my, uh, in my philosophy and the way I coach is I really want to help develop a deeper sense of awareness for, for the athletes I work with I re- and even the coaches that I work with deeper sense of awareness. What are you paying attention to? What have you maybe over oversighted as something that's not important, but actually it's probably the most integral part of what's happening right now. Um, and there's no right or wrong. But as long as we can unpack and understand, right, this is something that is there. It is, it is something that I'm going to put aside. But actually, this thing over here, I didn't even consider that yet. Okay, brilliant. So now, now that you start considering that, how does that impact on your perception? How does that impact on how you approach the situation? What, how, what, what part does that play in terms of whether you feel like this was an effective or ineffective decision? And, you know, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that approach and if there's any particular kind of maybe questions or routes that you would take to kind of navigate that further. No, I, the the whole concept of, of, of leading with questions and being genuinely fascinated and curious and always trying to find out more. And most importantly, trying to understand the other person's perspective and and the way that they see it, uh, I think is incredibly valuable. You know, I mean, going back to, and I know it was kind of a a ridiculous example, but going back to the blue t-shirt, you know, instead of offering feedback saying, I don't like your blue t-shirt, you can, you can basically make the same point, but in a much more effective way by saying, why did you choose to wear a blue t-shirt for the interview today? You know, put it back on the other person and let them clarify and expand, and it will give you more information. And then you'll be able to say, you know, now, because at any given moment, 
we only know a very small snapshot of what the other person is going through or what the other person is thinking. And as human beings, we tend to make massive assumption, assumptions and judgments based off very little information. You know, we one person does one little thing and then we assume that they would do this and that they think this and they believe this and they support this. It's like, man, we don't know any of that. You know, we don't know if any of that stuff is true. We're, we're trying to increase a false sense of security and certainty by assuming that it's true, but we don't know that. So I think um, as a leader in general, as a coach, um, the more questions we can ask, the better. You know, I, I always use the example in basketball, you know, if, if you've got some five on five and you're doing kind of a, a scrimmage situation and your point guard comes down and makes the bad pass and turns the ball over, you know, uh, uh, an average coach is going to blow the whistle, is going to berate the player for making a stupid pass and then, you know, blow the whistle to resume play where, you know, a, a slightly better coach will blow the whistle, tell the player what they should have done and then blow the whistle and resume play. I think an elite level coach will blow the whistle and ask the player, why did you make that pass? Why did at that moment in time, did you think that was the best decision to make and, and try to learn more about the way they saw the play unfold? And then when they explain it, you know, and they already know they've got the gift of hindsight. They know now that it wasn't the best play to make, but get them to explain what it was that they saw and then listen to them without being judgmental or critical, and then ask them a follow-up question and say, okay, well, now knowing what you know, what's a different play that you could have made? Or what's a different pass that you could have made? And get them to take some ownership and to course correct and to problem solve on their own. And of course, while you're having the dialogue with this player, the other players on the team are listening and hopefully learning as well um, so that they don't make the same mistake. So I'm a huge believer, uh, whether we're talking about coaching or we're talking about feedback in, in asking as many questions as you can and always trying to get more information and learn the other person's vantage point. 100%. I just want to start by saying, I love your blue shirt, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> um, no, but I think I think you're spot on. I think you're kind of just a, another layer to possibly add to that is sometimes the decision or what they've seen is the right thing, but it might just be the execution that they kind of failed upon in terms of getting 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 it to kind of come through. Um, so, but you know, but I, I love I love the way you kind of break that down because really, the message for all of us is let's just be more curious. Let's yes. stay curious. Let's find out as much as we can before we make a decision. Because coming back to another word that you've used a couple of times is that but that vantage point. A vantage point is key because as a coach, you're probably often watching it from the sidelines. They're in the midst of the action. Yes. You kind of want to see and understand what are they seeing. You want to hear and feel what they're feeling and hearing. What's around them? Why did they make that certain decision? Why did they not make the certain decision? What was that? You know, and, and, and it, it, this, it, for me, you know, coming back to round full circle, this is the basics. Absolutely, hundred percent. Basics, but but the key thing that really kind of come out from from that story that you mentioned with Kobe as well is that it wasn't the basics that made the difference; it was the level at which he was performing those basics. For sure. And this here is again, it's basics, but are you able to do this at a high level? Are you able to consistently reinforce and reapply the principle of? being curious with your athletes with the with your with your peers with your colleagues with your mentors and just trying to find out really more about not what's right and what's wrong but why 
Absolutely. Why are people going about this? But why why are they doing that? What are, what are the considerations? What are the variables they're taking into 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 play when, when they are making these decisions or whatever it is? So, on that note, you know, I'm I'm, I'm conscious of your time as well, Alan. You know, what, what would you say are some of the if we were to kind of round up? What would you say is kind of some key go to starting points for coaches to think about off the back of listening to this? <sighs> Well, I think kind of on the heels of what we just shared, there, there's something that when I'm working with uh, businesses and corporations, and especially with sales teams, um, we, we say that telling is not selling, that, that if you're trying to sell something to a, a, a prospective client or customer, uh, beating them over the head with your features and your benefits and telling them how awesome your product or service is, uh, is very low level. Uh, if you're asking them questions, uh, the right question of the right prospect, and you're dropping the right breadcrumbs, they'll come to the logical conclusion that your service or product is what they need. And, and it's not as sexy because it doesn't rhyme, but I think I could make the same argument, you know, telling is not coaching, uh, you know, and coaching is not telling that we have to, on some level, get curious and ask questions and encourage our athletes in particular to, to problem solve and to self-soothe on their own. That if everything we do as adults is instructive and telling them what to do and where to be and how to behave uh, they, they become miniature robots, you know, instead, give them the gift of autonomy, encourage them, support them, certainly teach them, model for them, but continually ask them questions. And you guys will kind of co-create their blueprint for development and growth, uh, I think is uh, is a much better uh, way. And it makes everything much stickier as well. Um, and and we'll, we'll create much more of an impactful um, relationship with you and your players when it's less directive and instructive and more curious, fascinated and inclusive. I think that's how you'll make much better progress. Amazing. Amazing. Alan, look, I just want to say massive thank you for your time today. You know, really appreciate it. There's a lot of, a lot of insight that's come out from everything that you said. And even just in, as I mentioned, further clarifying some of the things that I'm already doing, um, getting me to expand my thoughts on some of the things I'm, I'm, I'm doing or possibly thinking about going into doing. But like I said, there's listeners out here that I'm sure they're going to pick up on some of the nuggets. Is there some way they can get in touch with you or maybe find out a little bit more about your work should they want to? Absolutely. Well, this was a lot of fun for me. I'm, I'm so glad you reached out a couple of months ago. I'm glad we got this on the schedule. This was fun. Uh, my main website is allensteinjr.com. Uh, I have a supplemental site, strongerteam.com. That's that information on my books, my podcast. I do some exclusive one-on-one -on -one coaching, have an online course. Uh, and then I'm very accessible and easily found on social media at Jr on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, I take a tremendous amount of pride in not only being accessible, but also being very responsive. Uh, so if something in this conversation clicked, if somebody wants to share something or ask a question, uh, just shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn. I'm very good about getting back to folks. Uh, and if anyone has an interest in either of my books, uh, Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game, um, you can get them on Amazon or Audible or wherever you like to buy your books and audiobooks, and uh, always appreciate that as well. Amazing. What about the blue shirt? Where can they get the blue shirt? <laughs> yeah, I think this was a Banana Republic uh, order. I've had this thing for a long time, but it's it's one of my favorite because it's so comfortable. I love it. I love it. Alan, look, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. It's uh, been a fascinating conversation and, I'm, and I'd love to connect with you further beyond this as well. I would love that too. Thank you so much. Take care, man. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. 
You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.